the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. It's easy to be a conservative in Washington. You have all those think tanks around you, hugging you, loving you up, or in maybe one of those red states. We have conservatives around and conservative newspapers. But you know what? I'm John Cass, and I'm with my colleague Kristen McQuarrie from the Chicago Tribune. We're both columnists and editorial writers at the Tribune. We're filling in for Dan Proft. He's out, I guess, in Washington whispering, Kristen, to uh, Charles Schumer that all glory is fleeting. Mm -hmm. All glory is fleeting. But... uh, we are conservatives, print conservatives, in a blue state, in a blue town. It's Kristen. very lonely. Stick with us because we have, I think, a very interesting perspective in a blue city, in a blue state. In the sensible Midwest, you will find that sensibility woven throughout many of John Cass's columns. He is a syndicated columnist. Oh. You should read him. Um, there is no elitist conservative East or West Coast flavor um, in what John writes about and what the Tribune editorial page writes about. I'm blushing now. And <laughs> so we're we're happy to be filling in for the Dan Prof show tonight, and we hope you'll stick with us. We have a great lineup. We're going to talk to Lynn Wood, the attorney for um, Nicholas, the, Sandman. Nicholas Sandman, the Covington teenager. They recently had a, a, a settlement with CNN over uh, the treatment and the mistreatment of that case. We're going to talk to Tom Bevan, executive editor of Real Clear Politics, about last night's debate and looking forward. We're going to talk to Howie Carr, host of the Howie Carr Show. He's always entertaining. And Steve Cortez, who was once um, part of the Trump Hispanic Council, now has a, a radio program on this station in the evenings. You should listen to Steve. He's also a Chicago native and resident and a conservative living in, uh, as John likes to say, feeling like you're floating on a what? A crumbling cookie this in is, the sea of milk. Uh, Kristen and I, as conservatives in print, which is separate from conservatives on radio, yes. we are print conservatives. We are the, we're like the endangered species. Like there should be, we should be at the Field Museum stuffed someday. But right now we are floating on sugar cookie, crumbling in a sea of liberal milk. And if you think about it, I mean, I'm almost like kissing my own behind, and I don't like to do that. But for those of you out there from other states, Reds, just imagine what it's like. It's like 1984, the movie, but we're in real life. I mean, we have decent, great colleagues and people, you know, they're, they're, we're, not, we're not subject to Room 101 yet. There's no rat cage on my face yet. But to be a print conservative at this time, uh, in a blue state, especially think of this: Chicago is the place that gave you Barack Obama. Chicago is the place that is building a Barack Obama temple of love and fealty. They call it a library, but it's not a library. 
I call it a center, but it, but I think it's center, C-E-N-T-R-E. Like <laughs> we can't of, even get it off the ground either. It's so. still tied up in court cases, but the presidential center, the Barack Obama presidential center is still not a not even a teaspoon of dirt has turned um, in the city, but it's coming. It's and coming. Chicago is the town that gave you the dailies, the machine, the Chicago Democratic machine, and all sorts of other things. That uh, uh, Al Capone, Paul Rica, you can name it, the, uh, beef sandwiches, the list goes on and on. Or our glorious state, four governors sent to prison. Um, bipartisan. Bipartisan. Uh, highest unfunded pension liability. Most uh, lowest credit rating of any state. Everybody's leaving to move to Texas. Wild or, exodus. Right. Yes. So if you have Illinois transplants in your state from where you're listening, please treat them kindly. They are, they are fleeing the fleeing the um, what John likes to call the combine of Illinois, just the bipartisan, corrupt, high tax state in which we live, and in what John and I write about quite often. The uh, yeah, if you see residents from Illinois, you know that they probably are maybe have a twitch or they're they're feeling you know they they maybe a tick because they're under political PSD. I mean, they've had political PSD. They've suffered. They've been taxed. They've been mocked. They've been slammed. They've been called deplorables, but they can't do anything about it. Even those deplorables, so-called, as Hillary Clinton uh, named the Trump voters years ago, uh, they have no voice. I mean, they have little voice. They 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 read our columns. They read our editorials, but really they're oppressed, oppressed people. They're refugees. They're refugees. They're Treat free. them kindly. Uh, we're going to talk, as we mentioned earlier, to the attorney for um, to Lynn Wood, who represented Richard Jewell and the, the Nick Sandman in the Covington case, the, the student who was 16 years old and pummeled by the press immediately for what they they you know he's wearing a MAGA hat. He's at a pro-life rally. Of course, he's just a sitting duck for left-leaning news outlets. And then it turns out they were wrong. Yeah, Lynn Wood uh, read a column of mine. I write four columns a week. Kristen writes two a week and many, many editorials. Um, he read a column of mine, one of the syndicated ones. It's on townhall.com right now. I think that's where he read it. Yeah, a conservative site. So what? That's what I am. And um, what struck me about the thing, Kristen, is that the media attack on this boy, 16-year-old boy. A year ago. A year ago was really about, and, you know, people want to forget it now. They want to talk about Bombshell, the movie with uh, Charlize Theron and sexy anchor women fending off the sexual advances of a fat old guy, you know. They want that. They want to deal with that. I want to deal with Richard Jewell and the the hero of Atlanta that was destroyed by the media and of this kid. And this boy, to me... The reason why he was beaten up, as Joy Behar will tell you, was that he wore a he was a Trump supporter. They wanted to destroy Trump. Well, by they, she meant journalists. Yes. She says it. Journalists are desperate to get him out of office. But yeah. more than that, I think it was a warning by the journalism community, by people of the left. And let's admit it, there are probably there are many, many more people of the left than of the right in journalism. And what they wanted to do was send a warning to anyone. You stand, you wear a Trump hat, we will crucify you. 
And I think, has that message gone out there as a mom? Uh, I'm a dad. I, I, I think the message has gone out from the media, from social media, from all of it. If you think for yourself, if you are a conservative, you will be destroyed. I think the social media aspect of that just cannot be understated because you and I have both experienced the the mob, the anonymous (laughs) coward Twitter mob, the social media storm. And so I wonder how a 16-year-old kid recovers from something like that. Um, It took several days before that story started to unwind and several days is many, many, many media cycles. And if you're I mean, the parent. Oh, I, I can't of that imagine. Child, and you're sitting there watching your. Kid. I would have been terrified oh, of what he would have done, what others would have done to him. That his name is. Not, I mean, just a complete change um, of his entire life based on sort of just not sort of irresponsible media reaction. Why is that? I think it's a couple things. I mean, one, yes, I think being a a white kid with a MAGA hat at a pro-life rally already sets you up for kind of being a target of of a left-leaning liberal media. And also just the... We, we never learn our lessons. We never learn our lessons. We There have been so many mistakes made by the media over the course of the years and, and a real lack of accountability, I would say, um, even now like leaking into print media. I, I still can't get over the fact that the New York Times a year and a half ago wrote an anonymous op-ed about Trump. I mean, to, you know, calling him a Trump official and then running a piece without naming him while he tries to tear down the president. We would never do that at the Chicago Tribune no, editorial board. Dean I mean, Buc- you, you Dean- want to say something, you have to put your name on it. And so that, that's just one of many, many examples where I think the media is just testing boundaries and crossing ethical lines that they didn't used to cross. And that all came out in this Covington case where you just had people willing to jump on this story based on, what, like a 20-second video that went viral? There was many. There was an hour worth of video, but they didn't see it. They didn't bother to, to see it. If they had watched it, they would have seen the black Hebrews, Israelites, whatever they're called, the racist group attacking these boys. They would have seen the Native Americans screaming at them, telling them, go back to Europe. But they didn't want to see that. They just wanted to see the boy, Nicholas Sandman, smiling, awkwardly nervous with the um, with the Indian, with the American Native American activists, who who actually, once you watch the whole video, is the aggressor, is the person who approaches the boys. When, when we come back, we're going to talk to Lynn Allen. I'm sorry. When we come back, we're going to talk to Al Lynn Wood, the attorney for Richard Jewell in that great movie by Clint Eastwood, and Nicholas Sandman. We're filling in on the Dan Prof Show, John Cass and Kristen McQuarrie. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. This is John Cass from the Chicago Tribune. I'm a columnist and editorial board member of that great newspaper in the Midwest. And with me is my colleague, columnist and editorial board member, Kristen McQuarrie. Kristen, we're filling in for Dan Proft, who's 
obviously somewhere, I think, in somewhere Washington. Somewhere important, yes. I'm worried that he might be captured by Charles Schumer or something. Does he want to go have have a cigar with Charles Schumer? I, I don't know. Not. We'll see if he returns for his next show. But we're happy to be filling in. If those of you who are listening, you should be reading John Cass. He's a syndicated columnist. He approaches every topic with a conservative uh, sensibility of a Midwesterner, the son of a Greek immigrant who... Uh, how early was it that you wow, were sweeping is, floors in your this is really family grocery something. store? Well, Since people I need to know little, that you you have a voice that is different from East or West Coast elitist conservatives. I'm a you South are, Side, and so are you. We're South Siders, South Side Chicago. We're White Sox fans. Understand? Yeah, that's what that's, we are. That, that really sums it up. We're I with suppose. the people. We live in neighborhoods. We're from neighborhoods. I live in the suburbs now, but we're from, and I'm moving back in the city, by the way, but that's another topic. Oh, that's Maybe we'll news. save it for the breaking Chicago, Way, right. Chicago Way podcast. But, uh, and by the way, you can listen to that too. Um, we are, we're Southsiders. We're not fancy people. We're not intellectuals. We don't talk about how many angels can fit on the head of the pin. And I really don't give. You know, a damn what my friend Dan, Dean Baquet, who I worked with for years at the New York Times, thinks about my stuff. I just care about what people think. I don't care about those uh, Washington journalism fests. You ever been to one? I have. You know, which one? The gridiron? I have the, been to the gridiron. I had a. I I admit I was starstruck. I had a fabulous time. Don't hold don't hold it oh, against God, me. Please. Um, but but there is cute. this whole this idea of uh, journalists becoming celebrities, yeah. and it didn't used to be that way. And especially in print, I mean, you went into print journalism because you wanted to just be the guy be- or woman behind the scenes, writing the stories, we providing knew, the facts. We you, knew we'd die broke. We knew we'd die broke, and we never expect to be on television and have makeup artists and clothing consultants. But that's really what. That's really what the news has become, and um, I think that feeds into all into everything that that has to do with impeachment, that has to do with Trump, the role of the media. I, I would suggest reading or at least skimming Sean Spicer's book. It's very illuminating about how new social media and and just the constant live streaming of press conferences has really changed. Just all of the coverage, and that's why you see so much tilting. I think against President Trump. And is some moron with it. a cartoon head, without a real name, can go out there on social media and trash you. Right, which we're, we're going to get into a little bit with this attorney that we're interviewing, Lynn Wood. We've uh, he was the attorney for Richard Jewell and for Nick Sandman, the Covington student who um, got just completely destroyed on social media until. Everyone realized that uh, the the footage that they watched was not complete. They destroyed him, Kristen, because they thought this is why they destroyed him because they're the popular kids. They're the popular kids at lunch. This is Joy Behar. This is uh, CNBC or whatever it is. CNBC. These are the cable people. CNN. They're going to slap him around. They're going to punch him in the face. Um, what, all, one of the CNN hosts actually tweeted that's what that. They said. Punch, is this the most punchable face that you've seen? A CNN a host now, about a 16-year-old kid, yeah. What it was was a message to anybody, don't step out of line. Don't step out of line. In a way, it was a kind of Chicago way message, right? We'll break you if you step out of line. 
if you wear a Trump hat and you're a kid and you're at a, God forbid, a March for Life rally supporting the unborn, um, we will destroy you. That was the message. But something else I need to ask you. We're both print reporters. We've seen the broadcast people doing their makeup in the truck while they're standing outside somebody's lawn, some poor frightened person that gets trapped up in the news and they're hiding in their house and we're all outside and we're watching the TV people primp and get ready for it. But guess what? We're there too as print reporters. We're part of the pack. What's, what's it been like and how, how much of a shower do you need a shower? How quickly after you've been through one of these things? You know, I my experience with with the pack has been more just covering our state capital, Springfield, Illinois, and covering all of the. Um, we have a one party control of state government since two thousand here, Democrats, except for a four year sort of failed experiment with a Republican governor. But um, I, I never I never really went along with the pack mentality. I think those stakeouts are. Um, more about just kind of lazy reporting, getting the job done, getting a couple quotes, and then going back and reporting it. Um, and that's that's really what the news cycle has become, too. I'm sure by now everyone has seen the same recycled information. It's hard to find good, um, textured, layered um, analysis from the news. And, you know, we work in a city that is been controlled by Democrats for how many years? Over a hundred, more than a hundred years. One party rule. The Chicago outfit controlled it and put Democrats in charge, and then the big, the big industrialists controlled it and also put Democrats in charge. It's like Rome. It's like Rome before the fall of the Republic. This is exactly what Chicago. And like. you're seeing. I'm, we're going to see new congressional uh, maps drawn after the census next year. Illinois is losing at least one congressional seat, um, which we're lucky. We probably we there was fear that we would lose two because we've had such a population drop, not enough people moving in. We have a pretty poorly managed um, history of of state finances, highest unfunded pension liability. Um, unpaid bills that are stacking up, worst credit rating in the nation. And so people are leaving. They might be moving to your state, whoever, wherever you're listening from. So, um, And they'll take it over and they'll take the beautiful <laughs> red state that you live in. I hear that all the time. Please don't send us your left-leaning exodus residents, your they'll refugees. Start, they'll start organizing and they'll have uh, you know some kind of Bernie bro party. And the next thing you know, Elizabeth Warren will be telling you what to do or some – some, someone like Elizabeth scolding you. Well, they hope they hope not. I mean, people are fleeing to uh, to red states. They are fast growing. Texas, Arizona, Florida, um, California has never lost a congressional seat, but it might now in 2020. Um, other states that are going to gain, of course, Florida is going to pick up two seats: Arizona, Colorado, Montana, North Carolina, and Oregon. All places where people are. Moving to, in part because of lower taxes, less government. She is Kristen McQuarrie, columnist, excellent columnist from the Chicago Tribune, a member of its editorial board. I'm John Cass, husband, father, a guy whose father plowed with a mule named Truman. Yeah, a mule named Truman, and he'd bite and kick. He was an amazing creature. Um, and we're filling in for Dan Proft. We're filling in for the Dan Proft Show. On Salem Radio. Be right back. Back in the day. There was this girl around the way. 
This is the Dan Proft Show. Ago, last January, that Nicholas Sandman, the 16-year-old boy from Covington High School, was destroyed, savaged, ripped up, and spit out by a media mob. And I think Joy Behar described it best. Many uh, people admitted they made snap judgments before these other facts came in. But is it that we just instantly say that's what it is based on what we see in that moment and then have to walk stuff back when it turns out we're wrong why is that why is do we keep making the same mistake because we because we're desperate to get trump out of office (laughs) that's why not everybody though (laughs) but what does that have to do I think that that's the reason. I think the press jumps the gun a lot because we just, we have so much circumstantial evidence against this guy that we basically are hoping that, you know, Cohen's got the goods and what have you. And so it's wishful thinking. Right, but let's talk about the kids in this particular (laughs) (laughs) confrontation. Since that's the the question at hand. I've heard enough from you. The harpies of the view, the flesh-eating harpies of the view. It's it's frightening, though, how many people rely on The View, especially women, for their political news. Well, it's, it's, it's propaganda and it's tribal. Talk about this. We have the attorney representing Nicholas Sandman, and he also represented Richard Jewell. And I saw this great movie, Richard Jewell, Clint Eastwood's movie. He is described as the attorney for the damned, L. Lynn Wood. Good evening, Mr. Wood. Are you Good here? evening, John. Good evening, Kristen. Hello. Thanks for thanks for coming out. Thanks for, thanks for giving me the opportunity to come on. I, I appreciate it. We are uh, two print conservatives in a blue sea here in the Midwest in Chicago, but we've both been in those packs, those media packs. What happened to Nicholas Sandman and Richard Jewell as a result, result of these, I don't know, the desire by media to tear the flesh off their bodies, at least metaphorically? What happened to them? Well, if I, if I, I, I want to directly answer your question, let me first make the comment. I, I, I do represent Nicholas, and I have since uh, just a few days after the uh, March for Life on January the 18th, up until the present time. And I represented Richard Jewell for 16 years, uh, within a couple of weeks of the bombing, and for five years after his uh I believe, in my, my view, untimely death at age 40, uh, 44. Uh, the, and I was not in the movie. Uh, Watson Bryant, who was one of the other attorneys, uh, was in the movie. Uh, and he portrayed himself, and he also, I believe, uh, was a composite character of the other lawyers. The, uh, the answer to your question is that what the media did to... Richard Jewell and Nicholas Sandman d- did not destroy them, but it damaged them badly. Uh, Richard was portrayed as a likely bomber, someone who would intentionally create a terrorist act designed to kill and maim innocent people. The truth was, and is, that Richard Jewell was a hero. His actions that night at the park uh, 
resulted in saving the lives of clearly over 100 people because he alerted authorities to the fact that the package was near the tower that he was responsible for. But Richard, he didn't just stop there. When he saw the bomb agent look into that sack and walk off at what he called a fast run, Richard had been trained. He was a law enforcement officer. He'd been trained if you ever see a bomb agent uh, running, make sure you're running in front of him or her. And Richard made a decision, and he he didn't cut and run. He he went into that tower that he was responsible for, and he single-handedly evacuated every person from that tower. So the heroism of Richard Jewell never really was fully exposed to the public because the media couldn't resist the headline of Hero Turns Bomber. This is the Dan Proft Show on Salem Radio. We'll be right back. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. And now we're back with Lynn Wood, L. Lynn Wood, attorney for the damned. He is not the uh, fellow in the shorts uh, with the construction boots at the, in, in the movie Richard Jewell, although it was a fine movie. And uh, It was, I it, think. I haven't seen it. Well, it was a very good movie, sir. Um, Andy well, Rose, it was, it, the Richard Jewell story is a very good story. Can you? Uh, and, and, you know, and I lived the, the truth of what happened to Richard, uh, and the truth to me is still raw, and I have not... Uh, elected to see the movie because I know the truth. I, I know that if the movie correctly portrays Richard, and I have every reason to believe it did, that the movie would convey that Richard was, in fact, a hero. I have an issue with the movie as it relates to some other portions dealing with the AJC reporter, Kathy Scruggs. Me too. Uh, let, let me finish, if you would, guys. I didn't really finish answering your question. What happened to Nicholas Salmon? I told you what happened to Richard Jewell. What happened to Nicholas Salmon is he went with his classmates uh, to March for Life, the Covington Catholic uh, School always uh, historically had sent people to that event. And toward the end, after he had purchased as a souvenir a Make America Great Again cap, the confrontation occurred where he was confronted by Nathan Phillips and Native American activist after he, Nicholas, and his students had been uh, horribly uh, accosted by 
another group at the uh, event, uh, victim, recipients of all kinds of racial slurs and epitaphs. The black but when he was confronted by Nathan Phillips, I knew exactly what Nicholas Salmon did. He did nothing. He did not make any movement other than to, at one point, ask one of his fellow students to not talk to the, uh, an activist that was next to Nathan Phillips. He treated Nathan Phillips with dignity. He was quiet. He listened. And then he left. And after that, the media attempted to destroy him, and in the process, they badly damaged him. And I believe that they did so in the main because of the cap that he was wearing, because of their bias against President Trump caused them to rush out to attack President Trump with Nicholas being collateral damage. They didn't care what they said or did to, to, to Nicholas. They just saw him as an object to use to attack President Trump because he was wearing the red cap. They assumed that he was a Trump supporter. I've never asked Nicholas that question. They assumed he was a Trump reporter, I mean a Trump supporter. And I guess you could say that means they felt that he was a, a deplorable. And so they didn't care about what happened to a deplorable. They didn't care what they did to a deplorable. Even though and he was a, it, he was a 16-year-old a, a kid. And they badly damaged him, and the, the media that did that should be held accountable. And so along those lines, I know we, we can't speak directly to um, the settlement, but you have come to a settlement with CNN um, with his case. And um, I just wonder, even, even to add poison to, the, to this problem, even the other media outlets are not covering the fact that CNN settled with him. And if you try to sort of hold media accountable, I just want to hear what your experience has been, but just do a few searches on, you know, mistakes made uh, during the course of the Trump administration. Broadcasters take that content down if they make a mistake. There's just, there doesn't seem to be any accountability from the media when they do screw up. And you had a CNN host tweeting out a picture of Nicholas and saying, is this the most punchable face? I mean, just really deplorable, if I could use your word, uh, reaction from the media who is supposed to be measured. So can you talk a little bit about um, what you can about the settlement? And if you can't, then just what have your impressions been over the years with the media and a lack of accountability when they do make a mistake? Let me see, what, let me see if I can, can cover your questions. Um, first, let me point out that the, the use of the term deplorable was, was my word, uh, but it was not my word. It was, I recall, the word used by uh, candidate Hillary Clinton. That's why I used the word deplorable. Maybe the media felt about a Trump supporter the same as Hillary Clinton had had felt about him when she described him as deplorables. I'm not at liberty to disclose the amount of the settlement with CNN, and, and, and I have agreed not to do that. And uh, I will not, but I will talk generally with you about the settlement and its impact. The, the What's to be learned from the settlement? The fact of settlement. The amount is really not relevant other than it's relevant to Nicholas. I pursue truth for my clients, and I try to achieve justice for my clients. Justice is to be treated is when people are treated fairly and with respect. 
And so if the settlement occurred and I've done what I've always done, then I would hope that the people that know about the settlement uh, would recognize that it would be a settlement and a result that, as his lawyer, I believe was fair and reflected that he had been treated with respect. And and that's all I can really say about the settlement. I I agree with you, Kristen. There's very little accountability uh, on the part of the media for, for the media wrongdoing. And it is frightening that so many people watch The View and any other television news broadcast or any type of news, and I use the word news, it's not frightening about the number of people that watch. What's frightening is that the fact in today's world, they're not listening and hearing the truth, and that's frightening. So where we are with Nicholas is we have two other cases pending, uh, one against the Washington Post, one against NBC. We fully intend to file an additional number of lawsuits for him arising out of the same facts. And all I can do is his lawyer, along with other members of his legal team, including Todd McMurtry, a great, great guy, great lawyer uh, in uh, Kentucky. The only thing we can do is continue to pursue truth to achieve justice for Nicholas. That's what we intend to do going forward. Linwood, Linwood, attorney for Nicholas Sandman, the 16-year-old boy from Covington, going after the media, pursuing justice for his clients. Thank you, sir, for spending some Thank time. you very much. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. Yes, my father did have a mule named after a president. His name was Harry Truman, the president. The mule was named Truman, a short, stumpy, white, big-headed mule that bit people. They, they had him in the Marshall Plan. Oh, yeah, when people say, Mr. Tribune columnist, check your privilege, I say, really? My father plowed with a mule on his own field, and that mule kicked him in the head. It's a true story. And guess what? My father was a... Republican ever since. <laughs> and that's true. And this too. was from, this was when he was in the oh, homeland? This is the old country, Greece, mm-hmm. across the sea. Of, what kind of fields was he plowing? It was a what field was of growing? potatoes. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're from the, uh, my family, I'm Greek American, American of Greek descent. My family's from the hills, from the mountains, high up, the place where tourists never go. And if you ever go up there to those tiny mountain villages like Rizes, Duvunoa, which is our home, or the other ones above, and you start asking questions about me, it'll be like Winter's Bone, that movie. You'll you'll wonder, can you can I get back down the mountain? Am I safe? Am I safe? Are you safe? Well, is these are safe? the little delicious nuggets you get from reading John Cass's column. And if you need a break from politics, he sometimes writes about gardening, cooking. I think that must be your respite from, do from you, column writing do you write and everything about, is okay, do cooking. You, do, when do you step out? When are you going to step out? Because you have all these great stories, and and I hear them all the time on the podcast when you come on, and else and we talk at work. But 
I don't have your stories. I, I don't hear you. You write clear-eyed political analysis for the Chicago Tribune, but don't you like to write a little more personal sometimes? You know, I feel like whenever I step out of my lane, it doesn't it doesn't go so well. And I do have this kind of protectionist thing with my family right now. I have two young kids, and so I don't really write about um, my life or my kids or my family. I just sort of stick to yeah. um, politics in Illinois, which is. You know, we've sent four governors to prison. Um, we are one of the worst governed historically states, or especially over the past 20 years, when one party rule. There's plenty of bread in my pond um, to write about in, in that Barack regard. Barack Obama becomes the nominee for the Democratic Party. The national media calls him a reformer. He's so wonderful. Everybody ignores the fact that Tony Resco indicted Tony Resco was his guy buying his real estate for him. It, it was just sick. It's whole... always like that, though. Like, the local news media knows so much more about these candidates. You should always follow your the, where these candidates yeah. come from because... Because they treat the national media treated Barack Obama like he was Mr. Tumnus from Narnia stories, the, the man you want to... The little fawn that you would hug, and not the guy who droned people without, without uh, congressional... Oversight or support. Yeah, we have we only have a few seconds, but we have stories like that with Rahm Emanuel, who's former mayor, now on all these national TV shows. And I just wonder, do people know he's there because he couldn't get reelected here? We'll be right back. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. You know, uh, being a conservative in a blue state in print is tough. Kristen McQuarrie and I, John Cass, have it rough, but I don't think anybody had it more rough than our next guest, in blue Boston, oh yes! In blue Massachusetts, the great Howie Carr, radio host and columnist for the Herald, is our next guest. Hey, Howie. Hi, John. How you doing? How you doing? How you doing? I'm doing How you fine. doing? I I recently learned that so Illinois has had a Democratic General Assembly since. Um, the early 2000s, we had, we've had Democratic governors except for a small stint. But Massachusetts, your General Assembly, one-party Democratic-controlled since when? 50 years or something? Well, it's been, it's been longer than that. Uh, the, uh, the, the Democrat who engineered the uh, turnover of the Massachusetts House of Representatives from Republican to Democrat control was a guy by the name of Tip O'Neill. Oh, wow. Back in 1946. And the uh, state Senate uh, remained Republican until, I think, 1958, somewhere in there. So it's been uh, it's been like uh, 70 and 60 years, respectively. And uh, uh, one time uh, the, the Republicans almost retook control of the Senate, but it was very it was a very brief uh, time. So it's uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's tough that uh, when you have uh, this kind of Democrat control, I mean, they, you know, uh, as as you know, people are learning in states that have flipped recently, like uh, New York, which had a Republican majority in the Senate, they could stop 
stop the craziness uh, to a degree. But uh, now now you have a Democrat majority. And uh, look, they've got these crazy bail laws. You got the, there's a story today. Uh, this guy, since the new year, has robbed six banks in, in, in New York City. Yeah. Most of them in Manhattan and a couple in Brooklyn. Story. And they just keep letting him go. And when they when they let him go, they give him a they give him a twenty five dollar gift card like he's at some kid's birthday party. And he just uh, and they're they're all going down to the liquor stores. Look what's going on in Virginia with the uh, gun laws. They're 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 basically uh, trying to trying to uh, some of them are talking about uh, they've taken over this the uh, the the assembly, their legislature in Richmond, the Democrats for the first time in a long time. And they're talking about the. basically confiscating guns and they're saying if any cop doesn't want to go along with it he'll be fired we'll call out the national guard if we have to i mean that's there is a there's a serious serious price to be paid for one party rule especially if the party is as crazy as the modern democrats we're talking to howie carr columnist of the boston herald host of his radio program author of many books including what happened how donald j trump saved america from hillary clinton Kennedy Babylon, A Century of Scandal and Depravity, The Brothers Bulger, Whitey Bulger, How They Terrorized and Corrupted Boston. Howie, I wonder, how do you keep up this pace of writing books, writing columns, doing a radio show? How do, how does, how do you do that? Because I, I can barely write four a week without you know, collapsing. How do you do that? I don't have too many hobbies, John, except, uh, you know, my, my vocation is my avocation and vice versa. I, that's, that's what I like to do. I like to, uh, I like to read and I like to do research and, uh, I, I like being on the radio too. I mean, it's, it's fun to be, to be, you know, interacting with an, with an audience every day. And it's, you know what, John, it's gotten, a, I, I think you guys are kind of newer to radio, but oh, it's yeah, gotten easier with the internet and, uh, you know, you don't have, you don't have to worry about carts anymore. You know, every, everything is uh, digital and it's, it's a lot easier to turn around uh, sound. And, uh, I, I used to have to, when I started out in radio, I used to when I when there'd be stories in the suburbs, uh, or, you know, outlying areas from Boston, I'd have to call up, uh, you know, the, the city desk of an afternoon newspaper and, you know, there'd be an intern sitting around that I'd have to beg him to cut out a story and then fax it to me so I could read it. You know, oh, I mean, none of that's, that, all yeah. that stuff is, uh, you know, it's like uh, talking about the Gutenberg press now, you know, <laughs> uh, you, you don't have to deal with that. It's, it's easier than it used to be, John. That's all I can tell you. But one thing about uh, Howie Carr, for those of you who don't know him, and I'm sure all of you do, is, yes, he's conservative somewhat, but he's also not one of these fancy pinhead intellectual conservatives that drive people crazy. How do you, how do you exist in this world between the, the pinheads talking about how many angels are sitting up there on the pin with them and uh, the average guy in the street who cares about his family, his taxes, whether he could, whether his mom could come home from the store and not get, you know, hit on the back of the head with a wrench for her purse. Yeah, I mean, I, well, you know, I, I came up uh, when when people uh, didn't have, uh, you know, smartphones and uh, they, they were reading the papers on the on the subways and the buses. And I, I think you guys know what that's like, uh, you, you know, when you when you see people reading your newspaper in, in the morning and you have kind of a general idea that they're coming to the page that your stuff is on. 
and then you see if they if they stop to read it and they're you know they're if they smile i always liked it when they smiled uh, or, or when they their brow furrowed but then if they just if they just read us read one sentence and they flip the page then you know you haven't done it yeah. but i mean that's that's kind of the way the way i came up you know and I, and I, and the thing the thing about newspapers too is uh, not so much now, but in the old days, if if you grew up reading newspapers, I think you were able to write for newspapers. Generally speaking, you know, if you if you read a lot, you can write. You know, that's that's the way it is. You you just learn from from what you read, and uh, so I you know I never I, I never really had a uh, a uh, an ivory tower view of newspapers. You know, I always. Uh, I, I always just uh, I grew up reading tabloids, you know, I mean, I know you guys work for the trip, but, uh, you know, I, I uh, you know, I grew up uh, in the Northeast. So, you know, we had the we had the Boston Record American, but I, I the paper I really loved. And when I was a kid was the uh, New York Daily News. You know, it's mm-hmm. I mean, it's a rag now. It's just it's nothing. But uh, I know you get one of your sister papers and all that. But, uh, you know, it's just not it's it's. It, it's become sort of, uh, you know, the New York Times uh, light. And uh, but in the old days, I mean, those those great stories about the mob and, you know, that that's the first time I ever saw a body on a barroom floor was in the Daily News, you know, and oh, sure. the, it was New York's picture newspaper. And, and I, I love those old days of newspapers. I, I think you guys do, too. Right. Yeah, we do. And we do also get the same thrill. When you're on the train, or oh, that's when I hide. If I'm on, the, if if I see someone flipping through the paper, that's when I cover my face. Um, no, this, but you gotta, you gotta take it. You know, you. Gotta, yeah. you <laughs> oh, we get it. Sometimes Trust you me. just have yeah. to sit there and, and watch and see what's going on. You know, yeah. And, and if you, and if, and if they do turn the page, then you've got to think to yourself, well. You know, they they always told me that I should make my lead no more than, uh, you know, 20, 30 words, except under, you know, extremely rare circumstances. But, you know, the lead, the lead, I always thought the lead, the lead is still the most important thing. I, I don't, I don't know if many people remember that anymore, but you got to make that lead good. Once you get the lead, everything is, uh, flows from there, I think. Well, tell one us of the speak. things about oh, Howie ahead, Cars and Kristen McQuarrie, I think they both share this, um, and me, I guess. We don't. We never use italic precedes in our leads, mm-hmm. and the leads aren't no. a page long. They're just a few. They're just you know, maybe as short as we can make them. That's right. But one thing, Howie, uh, we're going to go to break, and then we're going to come back. I hope you can stay with us, because uh, sure. you know, one thing I've got to ask with all the things you do and all the the radio, the television, uh, the books, and all that, do you ever find time to cook? You like to cook, Howie? And I'm not talking <sighs> Greek food like my cousin Fred Smurlis out in Boston, <laughs> a buddy of yours. But I'm talking about, because I, I have a, after I watched CNN, uh, the debates last night, you know what I, I was yeah. looking for? Alcohol? You know, when, no. When Bernie Sanders got stabbed by CNN on behalf of uh, Elizabeth Warren, I was right. looking for some, like, cold crab meat omelets maybe cold omelets with crab meat you know you know john i i recommend and tucker has what tucker carlson has one too but i i it's right on my desk here i'm looking at it right now is a copy of pow wow chow that's you, there you the famous uh, cherokee cookbook with uh with the, the the recipe from elizabeth warren 
Cherokee for cold crab omelet, which she lifted from uh, Pierre Franet, I believe his name is pronounced, the New York Times uh, uh, French gourmet chef, uh, cookbook author. And uh, it was it was a big, big winner on the Trail of Tears. It was such a winner that it was the favorite recipe at uh, Le Meridien. We're going to talk. We're going to catch up with we're going to catch up with that recipe and more from Howie Carr when we come back. This is John Cass, Kristen McQuarrie filling in for Dan Prof and the Dan Prof Show. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. We are speaking with the legend Howie Carr, radio host, columnist from Boston, author and expert on Whitey Bulger and his brother, the, the intersection between the what organized crime and politics, just like we have here in Chicago where Kristen McQuarrie and I work for the, for the Tribune. We're talking to Howie about Pow Wow Chow and that wonderful crab meat, cold omelets with crab meat. And I remember reading that, and she was playing yes. when she was doing the Focahontas thing, and I just was laughing my head off, Howie. That was just so Yes, cool. it's on page 155. I have the book in my hand right now, uh, John. Uh, and, this was, and this was the favorite. It, it, it's, it's even better, though, because, you know, when we finally ran the recipe down, and again, this is the way it, it's so easy now because you just type in a few words into Google, and, and it comes up. This recipe was not just a uh, something that she stole from this New York Times uh, French chef who was one of the you know the all-time great French chefs that emigrated to America, but it was also the favorite of those well-known uh, Indian chiefs, Noel Coward, and the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. Yes, it was their favorite favorite uh, dish. Break uh, cold cold omelets with crab meat. Uh, write some of these down. They, Eight large eggs, two teaspoons finely chopped parsley, et cetera, one, he- one quarter cup heavy cream, and of course what there was always on the trail of tears, one pound of crab with tomato mayonnaise dressing. Because, and then yes, it goes on from there. When you're marching in your death march where thousands of people are dying, <laughs> right, when the Union Army is marching <laughs> you to death, that's what you go for. You know, uh, Howie, I've never, I've always thought that this woman is a phony from the from the word go for all the things that we know about her, but does it aggravate you or did it aggravate you that you knew so much about her because you're from Boston, you're there in her town and she got the media treatment, um, you know, sort of like the cleansing, the baptism of, of national media in the same way. I think that Barack Obama leaves Chicago, you know, after he pulled the sword from the stone um, and uh, became King Arthur. It just drove me crazy. I wonder how, how you handled it. Yeah, no, it, it did. I, I mean, what always has gotten me is that uh, one time in, in 2016, I, uh, I was with Trump up in Maine because I, I, my radio show is in Maine as well as Massachusetts. It's all over the place. By the way, you can all, everybody can listen to it at HowieCarshow.com, and just uh, there's, there's plenty of ways to listen to it live. But I was up there with him in Maine, and we were doing a live uh, rally, and I was introducing him. And I said uh, to the to the main crowd, 
I said, you know, I'm from, uh, you guys know me, but I'm from Massachusetts. Uh, we have a, uh, we have a Senator. You may have heard of her, Elizabeth Warren. And then I went, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no. you know, and it was on, it was on the, all the uh, cable channels. And before I even got off the stage, they were attacking me as being, a, uh, you know, on social media for, for being a racist. And, and it, it, you know, I mean, it more amused me than anything else because because uh, I said, you know, how can I, I'm a white person, but I'm not as white as she is, but I, I'm giving her grief. Uh, so how is it racist for one white person to be attacking an even whiter person? And so we're we're back on the plane, you know, going back to New York with uh, Trump after the rally's over and I'm showing him what's going on with the social media and I'm being attacked as a racist. And he said to me, he said, whatever you do. Don't apologize. Never, ever apologize. He said, remember Jimmy the Greek? There, there you go, John. That's my Greek there connection today, there not just Fred Smurls. He said, remember Jimmy the Greek? He was doing great till he apologized. Then it was all over. And it's it's so true. I mean, it's one of the old uh, Boston mayors used to always say, James Michael Curley always used to say, never complain, never explain. Mm-hmm. And it's true. And that's the, those are the, those are words that Donald Trump lives by. And it's it's a it, it's good for everybody to live by it in public life anyway. So tell us since we're on the subject of omelets and delicious meals, tell us about in case people missed your column or your commentary about your recent seafood risotto, um, your impressions of um, <laughs> that evening and, and tell us what was going on behind the scenes. Right. I, I was uh, I, I, I'm a member at Mar-a-Lago. I, I spent some time down there. I, I was raised part of my youth in Florida. So I so I when I got some uh, some spare cash, I got a place in Palm Beach where I lived this lived for a while as a kid and i'm a member at mar-a-lago and so i see the president down there sometimes and uh over christmas uh i was i was having dinner there with my wife and uh clients on our radio show and uh so the, the we were sitting near where he comes down when he goes to dinner and so he comes down the stairs and and uh so it was about eight o'clock at night and uh it was a thursday night i think and he comes down the stairs, and normally he makes the perimeter around the dining room and then sits down with whoever he's eating with. But this night, he comes down the stairs, we watch him, and he takes a right into this room, which I now have realized was where the secure communications are. And he spends 15, 20 minutes in the room with his aides and a few Secret Service, and then he comes back out and goes to his table and it's only like a two, a two person, a deuce with uh, Kevin McCarthy, the house minority leader, the Republican from California. And uh, so he sits down and he's there, they're having dinner. And then my wife and I are leaving and uh, he, he sees me and he waves to me, he pulls me over and uh, he just starts talking. We get back. He says, what's happening to Elizabeth Warren? Why is she going downhill at the polls? I mean, he's just, this is like 8.30 at night. They, they're not going to announce it officially for an hour that they bought, that they've killed uh, Soleimani. But he's he's just going, you know, what what happened to Elizabeth Warren? And I said, I think Bernie's ahead. And he said, really, Bernie's ahead in New Hampshire? And I said, yeah, I think so. And then he's he's like, you know, just kind of like thinking about, thinking about it. And he asked me and Kevin McCarthy both, says, who do you think would be better to run against, Biden or Bernie? And we both said Bernie. But the, the point I'm making here is that, you know, he, he it wasn't like Seven Days in May or Dr. Strangelove or anything like that. They were portraying it as like the beginning of World War III. 
and it was just another night at Mar-a-Lago. And he he was totally calm, cool, collected, and he was just uh, you know he was just sort of batting the breeze with uh, with with uh, uh, Kevin McCarthy. And then you know I happened by, and he knows me, and so I talked with him for a couple of minutes, probably about like four times longer than Vince Vaughn did. So <laughs> I guess I'm lucky. I I guess I'm lucky. My career has been destroyed. <laughs> for talking to him but he he's just he was totally in control and i went back to to my place which is like two miles away and i turned on the tv just to see what was going on and they were announcing soleimani was dead and all these people were going crazy and their hair was on fire on tv and, and i thought to myself it i find it reassuring that he wasn't going crazy you know that he that he just he knew what he had to do and he did it, and then life went on, and he's just kind of, you know, having a casual, uh, you know, holiday conversation with, uh, you know, one of the, uh, w- one of the members of the club, and uh, one, one of the uh, one of his allies in Washington. If you were, if you were Democrat, the way he is. If his name, what? if he was a Democrat from Arkansas, they'd call it compartmentalization. <laughs> Howie Carr, the great Howie Carr, writer, columnist. Radio host, thanks for being here. It was a pleasure to talk to you, sir. Hey, pleasure to talk to you guys, and I'll, uh, I'll give your best to uh, Fred Smurlis. He should cousin. be in the Hall of Fame, Fred Smurlis. He should. Absolutely. That's right. Absolutely. Thanks, Howard. All right. We'll see talk you. Talk to you guys. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. This is the Dan Proft Show. You know what it's like being a print conservative? Oh, there's only two of us left. It's lonely. We, we don't even have cells of three because there's only two. It's a very lonely existence. And in the blue state, well, outside of Chicago and surrounding counties, the state of Illinois is actually red, but the population numbers just aren't there to push push us over the top. So we have a democratically controlled General Assembly since 2002, um, we now have a Democratic governor. We've had multiple Democratic governors except for one four-year stint of a because Republican governor. Because all the, governor. De- all the de- our deplorable friends are leaving for Indiana. But one person who knows what it's like to be a conservative in Chicago is our friend Steve Cortez. Hello, Steve. Hey, hello. Thank you for having me. Uh, and by the way, listen, I do empathize with both of you to be a print conservative in Chicago but I am a Trump nationalist on CNN for the last two years. So forgive me if I'm not going to be too sympathetic to somebody else at their plight of being lonely, uh, because that is pretty tough sailing, as you can probably imagine for somebody with my views. Yeah, I'm not trying to compare uh, uh, <laughs> war wounds with you, man, because you sit up there and watch him kiss uh, David Axelrod's behind, and you're just sitting there on the sideline. What's that like? Well, listen, I will say this. Uh, my, my tenure with CNN is almost done. I do give them credit uh, for putting a voice like mine on, and I don't see that, for example, on MSNBC when I watch their primetime, uh, which I occasionally do out of necessity, not because I want to. Um, you do not see any alternative voices, or at least very rarely do you see any um, alternative voice. So I give CNN certainly credit for that. 
Um, but it will be no uh, uh, no surprise to you or to any of the listeners that I'm a very lonely voice at CNN. And I just think, look, in general, CNN, MSNBC, anywhere, print media, um, it, it's unfortunate, I believe, that there's a real crisis of journalism in this country. Far too many people who are activists and advocates are trying to masquerade as journalists. And that lack of transparency and that hypocrisy really has destroyed a lot of trust from the public, rightfully so in media and that void of real journalism i think is really problematic for our republic so i've always been incredibly transparent i am an activist i'm an advocate i'm trying to persuade people of the american nationalist agenda Um, a lot of my colleagues in corporate media are similarly activists and yet they pretend to be reporters and anchors and i think you know therein lies the sort of systemic problem that unfortunately plagues a lot of so-called journalism today I mean, that's so true. And I think there is such a lack of connecting the dots among um, left-leaning voters and left-leaning journalists in understanding that the public's on to you. I mean, in the sure. past, there might have been, um, and I started out writing for a newspaper in the mid-90s when there was, you know, no cell phones, no internet, and you didn't have this. You didn't have this presence that now even print journalists have. You weren't primping for cameras. You didn't have Twitter, and it still surprises me to watch some of the tweeting and social activity from the from the people covering the White House, the news reporters, not you, who's pr- providing analysis and opinion, but the straight up news reporters just blatantly putting out their their political views and their editors yeah. not reining them in. I mean, that is something that years right. ago would never have been tolerated. Yeah, no, listen, it's a great point. I'm glad you mentioned the Twitter, too, Kristen, because I often say this to people. I mean, if you don't believe me, just follow. I follow pretty much everyone in that White House briefing room. I know we don't see the briefing room much anymore because they don't do briefings, but um, pretty smart. much everyone in that room who is allegedly a reporter. Again, you know, people in that room are not supposed to be pundits. They're not like me. They're not like David Axelrod. You know, we are supposed to have a point of view and transparent about it. They are allegedly reporters. If you follow their Twitter feeds, though, what I think you will find very quickly, it doesn't take a deep dive. What you will find very quickly is that they are incredibly biased advocates um, and in the case overwhelmingly so against the president. They are part of the so-called resistance. Now, listen. Nothing wrong with being part of the resistance, but don't call yourself a reporter. You need to then, and, and, and that blurred line, I think, unfortunately, is what has destroyed so much trust in media. And that's not just my opinion. There's a Monmouth University poll. 77% of Americans believe that mainstream media. We are talking to Steve Cortez. This is John Cass and Kristen McQuarrie of the Chicago Tribune filling in for Dan Proft. We'll be back in a minute to continue our discussion with Steve Cortez. Shaking the world, done shaking the world, done shaking me down. The world, done shaking the world, done shaking the world, done shaking me down. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
Okay, this is John Cass, husband, father, columnist of the Chicago Tribune, syndicated, of course, and member of its editorial board. And with me is my colleague, the great Kristen McQuarrie, level-headed columnist, editorial board member of the Chicago Tribune. We are the last two print conservatives in Chicago, I believe. I think there's maybe one more that is stuffed at the Field (laughs) Museum. (laughs) And we are talking to Steve Cortez, who's got a great new show here on these airwaves, Steve Cortez Show, AM 560, Salem Radio. And Steve, you were talking before the break about the importance for people to go over reporter, look at a byline, look at a reporter on TV or byline in the print, and then check their Twitter feed to see how biased they really are. Yeah, I'm honestly a bit surprised. I mean, I'm glad that they're blatant on their Twitter feeds, uh, but I'm a bit surprised um, at how blatantly they are uh, resistance advocates against the president when it comes to social media. And so if if you look at a lot of the people who are allegedly reporters um, who work in the White House press corps and when there were briefings where the people asking the press secretary questions in those briefings, if you uh, peruse quickly, this, this doesn't take a deep dive, John, um, at their Twitter feeds, you will find that overwhelmingly it's nothing but snark and negativity toward the president and toward his supporters, by the way. It's one thing to rip on the president, and I think this president, in fact, really thrives often on that kind of antagonism with media. But the media has really jumped a shark, too. They no longer only mock the president, but now his supporters as well. That's the problem, uh, right? That's the yeah, problem that, that we saw that with... of honor, by the way. <laughs> we saw that problem expressed in the vilification of Nicholas Sandman. We see it sure. every day where the young kid, we see it every day um, on Twitter, the attempts to, to humiliate voters. I never understood that. Why would you want to mock and humiliate voters and basically threaten them that once we take over, what, you're going you're gonna to bring us to the guillotine? You're going to chop off right. our heads? Well, I, I think what Democrats and their media allies, and, you know, and let's make no mistake, the vast majority of corporate media, is a, is a PR extension of the Democratic National Committee. I mean, that's just the reality. You know, I was saying that journalism is largely dead or it's at least in crisis in this country. What most so-called journalists actually do is they function as a, as a public relations machine for the DNC. And so what they are doing, hand in glove, Democratic leadership, politicians, and media, complicit media, is they're trying to make it socially unacceptable to be a Trump supporter. Um, for instance, this is why they constantly call us racist. Um, without any evidence, without any justification, uh, they call us racist. Why? Because in 2020 America, being called racist is about the worst thing you can possibly be called. Um, and so it's an attempt, you know, you're exactly right when you use the word vilify. It's an attempt to vilify us, to demonize us, um, and to make it so that people are, are frankly, afraid and ashamed uh, to agree with a political agenda that, by the way, is working wonderfully uh, for this country. But, you know, paradoxically, I do think it's also turning on them because a lot of Americans, probably most Americans, right, don't like being told what to do by their supposed cultural betters, by these elites of media. Um, And I think in, in many cases, they're actually driving people into Trump's camp, even if they don't totally embrace the president, um, they're, they're willing to take a risk there only to thwart these constant sermons that, that are delivered by Democrats and their mainstream media allies. I wondered when you were watching the debate, did you watch the debate last night? 
Unfortunately, I've got to for work, Kristen. I okay. hate it, but yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> I, I needed, I needed, you know, like caffeine, and it was such a snooze fest. But I wonder when you watch that and you look ahead to 2020, are do are any of them, are any of the Democrats performing in a way that will pull support from Trump? If Trump is going to lose support, is there any candidate on that stage that might be attractive to? that middle of the road, the, the person who wanted to drain the swamp but is uncomfortable with the way that, that Trump does his business, is anybody attractive mm-hmm. to that voter on that stage? You know, I have to say no watching last night. And by the way, don't, don't take my word for it. My CNN colleague, Van Jones, uh, and I wouldn't agree with very much with Van, our very progressive Democrat on policy. We disagree on just about everything. But I agree with his assessment post-debate um, when he said, uh, he First of all, he said it was as exciting as cold oatmeal. That was his uh, phrase, and I agree with him on that. But even beyond the lack of pizzazz, um, he he admitted that he said there was no one on that stage who, in his view, could take down Trump. That was the phrase he used when it comes to November. So, you know, I think that's correct. Look, it's always difficult to beat any incumbent president. An incumbent president with a thriving economy, which we have right now, it's nearly impossible. So you need an incredibly compelling opponent. Um, you know, with a real movement, not just, well, we don't like Trump or Trump tweets too much or he's too brash. I mean, that's not going to cut it. You know, I'm tired of the objective here, even though I'm clearly a Trump partisan. That won't cut it to beat an incumbent president with a thriving economy, which is the present scenario. Mm-hmm. Did yeah. any of them move the needle last night? Did you feel like somebody um, might emerge stronger in Iowa based on that performance? You know, and I disagree with most folks in corporate media, which I guess isn't surprising. I think the person who probably did well was Bernie Sanders, and almost just by default, though, not that he, by his own volition, he did well, but he was so mistreated, I think, by CNN, quite frankly, by my network. Uh, the way that the question was framed to him when Abby Phillips asked him uh, if he said that, you know, that a woman couldn't win, did he say that to Warren? He emphatically denied it. She immediately pivoted to Warren and said, what did you think when he told you that a woman couldn't win, <laughs> which he had seconds before explicitly denied. So instead of, instead of pivoting correctly as an anchor would, uh, a legitimate moderator to Senator Warren say, look, Senator Sanders denies what you said. How do you explain this discrepancy? Do you have proof? How do you validate your totally contradictory statement? Instead of that, uh, what did CNN do? It immediately took Warren's side. Um, and so certainly what I saw on social media, which was interesting for the first time that I've ever seen it, there was a lot of agreement between conservatives, between people like me and the Bernie bros um, in being extremely angry at the treatment from corporate media. So I don't think that that alliance won't last long. We don't agree on much. Um, but that was an interesting outcome. My guess is slight uptick for Bernie. and I think he probably takes some support from Elizabeth Warren, because to me, look, none of us know we weren't nobody other than a few staffers who were at that dinner a year ago they're talking about. But to me, it seems very blatant that Elizabeth Warren is being very underhanded in her uh, in her rendition of what Bernie told her or didn't tell her. Bernie Sanders is the only authentic Democrat in that group. I have to write about it. I shouldn't talk about it. I should just write about it. But thanks, Steve Cortez, spending some time with us today. You bet. Thank you. That's why I'm easy. I'm easy like Sunday morning. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show.
You know, Kristen, we can talk all we want about who, you know, media and Trump and Republicans, Democrats, liberal bias and all that. It's all true. But, you know, people should know. I mean, we're not, at least I don't consider myself to be a Trump cheerleader. I remember saying that if he got into a war with Iran, he'd lose the election. And people started calling me out as a liberal, which made me, <laughs> made me laugh. But, you know. Yeah. No, I think that it, it's what I've talked about a few times um, during this broadcast. But I do think the Tribune editorial page and your column... Um, have sort of a Midwestern sensibility that the elites on the on the East and West coasts, coasts don't. And so we have not been big Trump supporters, but we do laud him when he does something right. We don't get hysterical about every tweet. We try to take the long view um, on every single issue from tariffs to the economy to foreign policy um, we actually were we did not jump on the editorial board bandwagon and ask for and and seek impeachment no, for we the were president. The opposite. We said it we did were not measured. Reach. It was not an impeachable offense, but it was an abuse of power, and he deserved to be censured. And there was a lot of you can go read that editorial if you're interested in more of the backstory. But we do come from a state and a city where there's been a lot of political corruption that uh, people are trading taxpayer funded. Um, items in order to benefit their campaign or them personally. And that looked a little bit like that to us. You so, want a quid pro quo? Here's one. Barack Obama sold his or bought his dream house, but he didn't have to buy the yard next door because a fixer named Tony Resco bought the yard next door. And gave well, it sure. Him. I mean, we actually okay. see this kind of stuff all Everything. the time in politics. Hey, hold a fundraiser for me, and then you get access to maybe talk about your policy position. That you. Every politician does that. Every politician does that. Or many do, I should say. Um, but so we have taken a more measured approach to Donald Trump and, um, like I said, praised him when we think he does something that is in the benefit of the country and taxpayers, and criticized him when, when he's um, gone overboard. But there's one thing I won't uh, take a measured approach on, and that is the constant media humiliation, marginalization, belittling of 63 million people in this country who voted for him. I just, that to me, I loathe it, and I see it all the time. And uh, we're going to talk to a media guy on the ground in Iowa who just watched the Democratic debates. Tom Bevan is the co-founder, publisher, president of Real Clear Politics. I recommend that height. Uh, it's a wh- site every highly. morning. First thing you should do every morning. Mm-hmm. Back and forth, liberals and conservatives on that site, providing insight. This is John Cass and Kristen McQuarrie. Filling in for Dan Proft on the Dan Proft Show. We'll be right back. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Yeah. 
nothing like ritual and there's a ritual going on right now this week in Washington the impeachment of a president with all the pomp and circumstance that Nancy Pelosi and Google eyes Chuck uh, what's his I mean uh, what's his name the the, the house in Schiff Adam oh, Schiff, Adam Schiff. Mm-hmm. I got I got confused when I thought of Google eyes I thought of those dolls that you squeeze and the yes. eyes come out Google is Google eyes a verb it's, yeah. it's a new one I like it and they're taking the impeachment it's a ritual it'll be treated that way by much of the media a somber experience full of gravitas a instead of a fundraising apparatus for the Democrats but what do you think I just I mean the do you think that the TV cameras and everyone has been cued as to when the procession happened and all of the managers walking somberly in a you know across the Capitol? It's just the the ridiculousness and the staged aspect of this. That to me, that was a just a cornerstone of what this has been all about. You have um, Nancy Pelosi carrying these the articles across. Um, the Capitol, when she's been sitting on them now for how long? Almost a month. Um, we had an urgent reason that we needed to act it had to immediately. Be done in, and in a minute. Had to be done in a minute, and now um, finally they're transferred over. Uh, there is there's a possibility the trial will begin this week, but next um, Tuesday I think is going to be probably the more um, dramatic day of of the beginning of the trial. Third president uh, to undergo this process in our nation's history. But so why is he being impeached? <laughs> I, 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 mean, I got a theory, and I have to say, I originally, you know, I wanted Clinton impeached. I know that I had colleagues at the paper, oh, no, he shouldn't be impeached. It's not impeachable. Yes, it was. He obstructed because justice, and I know people... Bill Clinton perjured himself, and right. we sent people to prison for perjury, number two. He was in the Oval Office with Monica on her knees. He's eating pizza, talking to Sonny Callahan, U.S. Representative Sonny Callahan of Alabama, about sending troops, getting money to send American troops in the harm's way in the Balkans. And after that, I would never forgive such a person. Now, this one, I don't see it as impeachable, but... I guess Nancy Pelosi certainly does. What's the benefit? I mean, this could end. We don't know how this is going to shake out for for the 2020 election. Um, There is more information that's being sort of pumped up today that there are new emails. um, Whether you know what what can be submitted, the possible they're of course using this word. I think they're using the word stalking. That like the tr- there's new evidence that the Trump administration and some of Giuliani's Giuliani's associates were. It's the Brett Kavanaugh playbook. You get to a certain part of the ritual, and then you drop another. Oh, you know, so that Aaron Burnett or whoever it is on CNN and MSNBC can speak breathlessly about it. Do the people want imp- impeachment, or do they want to wait and vote? the way they want for the president of the United right. States. Right. I mean, it's been the polls have been really split on whether or not the president should have been impeached. And Democrats are aware of that. I think everyone who took that impeachment vote is a little nervous. 
But timing does play into this. Um, There's an election in a few months. If people want to kick out President Trump for what they believe to be an abuse of power over Ukraine, um, then then there's an election to do that. And you don't and you don't want your elected officials to do that. And it didn't happen in a bipartisan fashion like Nancy Pelosi promised. It's a farce. okay. And by the way, I've almost forgot if you're listening to uh, Kristen McQuarrie, you've realized she's not Dan Proft because (laughs) she is not. And I'm John Cass, and we're both from the Chicago Tribune, two print journalists floating on a sugar cookie, crumbling all around us in a sea of liberal milk in a blue state, in a blue town that is building a temple of love and fealty to President Barack Obama and former president. And that's how we roll. We're trying to survive. We only have cells. We don't even have a cell of three. There's two of us and Dan Proft, basically. (laughs) But listen, uh, Kristen, back to the impeachment. I think there's a reason for this, and it has nothing to do with Ukraine. It has nothing to do with the so-called bribery and he stole the election from Hillary. All that is nonsense. Here's what it is, I think. Trump, Trump campaigned on the promise to be a disruptor, the promise to kick the swamp and the swamp people in the special purpose and not apologize for it. That's why he was elected. And he's doing that in the sense that what he's doing is attacking through the, uh, through Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme court and Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme court. And now if um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg can't hold on, You'll see that you'll Trump will select another, select uh, her her replacement. It's about the administrative state. It's about the power of the federalized bureaucracy. The bureaucrats, the lawyers, the judges who make their own rules and their own um, rulings. They make they pass their own laws even though they don't go through Congress. Uh, our friend Charles Lipson has a great piece in the Americans. I'm sorry, Real Clear Politics about this, but I, I really think that it's the administrative state and all these reporters who are playing partisan games, you know, back and forth and defending Nancy and opposed opposing Trump. Some of them are so witless that they don't even realize that they're just being puppet like puppy dogs for the administrative state. They don't get it. They don't get Trump voters for sure. And we talked about that earlier, that you're talking about 60 million Americans. And it's it does surprise me still when reporters haven't even tried, haven't even tried to understand the Trump voter. But also in watching the debate last night, how many years are we going to talk about uh, prescription drug prices and health care costs and um, how China and uh, North Korea have violated every agreement, Iran, for 30 years that we have tried to uh, extend with them, with our allies. Every, almost every question that was asked last night could have been asked in 1990. So why th- this is why voters are more willing to take on the bull in the China shop that Trump is, because he is upending Washington. And there just seems to be this lack of connection between sending the same people there and getting the same thing in return 
when we are literally talking about the same issues that for 30 years. I, I really, I don't understand it. And even when Democrats are in control, even if you're a Democratic voter and you, you like the ideas that Elizabeth Warren is putting forth or whatnot. Or Democrats, or, or Bernie. Bernie has introduced a lot of this and he can't even get most Democrats right. um, to sign on to a lot of his legislation. So w- when Democrats have been in control, have they solved these problems? Are we, are we, do we still have a, a Medicare and Social Security programs that are going to dry up at some point with, with no attempts are, at reform? Yes. The Democrats are about, since Wilson, that racist who allowed the epidem- pandemics to destroy all of Europe or half of Europe. From then on, it's been progressivism, progressivism, progressivism. It's been about the building of the deep, large administrative state. Trump is trying to fight fight it back with appointments to the federal judiciary. These are key appointments that um, he's being helped with selecting by the by the Federalist Society and other conservatives. It's about dismantling that great administrative state, and that's why they're fighting. Because you know who they are? The, the actors who are out front screaming and talking and yelling? They're Kamalists. Kamalists from Mustafa Kamal, the boss of Turkey, years and years ago. And anyone who came to threaten the state had to be destroyed. And Trump has fulfilled his promises, or at least his promise to attack, And they're trying to destroy him because the state is trying to survive. This is John Cass and Kristen McQuarrie in for Dan Proft on The Dan Proft Show. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. CNN reported yesterday that, and Senator Sanders, Senator Warren confirmed in a statement. That in 2018, you told her that you did not believe that a woman could win the election. Why did you say that? Well, as a matter of fact, I didn't say it. Uh, And I don't want to waste a whole lot of time on this, because this is what Donald Trump and maybe some of the media want. Uh, Anybody knows me knows that it's incomprehensible that I would think that a woman could not be president of the United States. Go to YouTube today. There's a video of of me 30 years ago talking about how a woman could become president of the United States. In 2015, I deferred, in fact, to Senator Warren. There was a movement to draft Senator Warren to run for president. And you know what? I said, stayed back. Senator Warren decided not to run, and I did, I did run afterwards. Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by three million votes. How could anybody in a million years not believe that a woman could become president of the United States. And let me be very clear. If any of the women on this stage or any of the men on this stage win the nomination, I hope that's not the case. I hope it's me. (laughs) But if they do, I will do everything in my power to make sure that they are elected 
in order to defeat the most dangerous president in the history of our country. But then the uh, Democrats continued to devour themselves on that intersectionality highway where everyone plays a card, you know, uh, female card, gender card, old man card, guy with grit in his teeth card. That's Joe Biden uh, working it out with his tongue. And then Elizabeth Warren is asked the same question that Bernie Sanders just denied. It was like CNN taking its story that was leaked to it by the Warren campaign and then ramming it home, stabbing, stabbing poor little Bernie right there. Listen. What did you think when Senator Sanders told you a woman could not win the election? I disagreed. Bernie is my friend, and I am not here to try to fight with Bernie. But look, this question about whether or not a woman can be president has been raised, and it's time for us to attack it head on. Um, And I think the best way to talk about who can win is by looking at people's winning record. So can a woman beat Donald Trump? Look at the men on this stage. Collectively, they have lost 10 elections. Okay, thanks. Thanks, uh, Elizabeth. But that was, I think, classic, wasn't it, that CNN just stabbed Bernie that way? I mean, I kind of liked it because you're, they're, they're saying, basically, we don't believe you uh, and, and throwing it to her to, to address. And then they just sort of leave it up for viewers to decide whether or not they think he really said it and how big of a deal should we make out of it anyway. And If there's anyone who's upset, it's the Bernie bros in Iowa. They will, they will use this to galvanize his position as the victor in Iowa because he is the one authentic Democrat running on that side, um, the gulags notwithstanding. Now, talking about this, he was there. Tom Bevan, co-founder and president of Real Clear Politics. Tom, hello. Hey, guys. How are you? So did you see it the way we did, that CNN was just, just stabbed him like that? Well, I mean, look, there are two options. One is is the moderator was just so bad that she had this question written down and didn't basically listen to Bernie or take anything that he said. And, and she was just, you know, pre-programmed to ask Elizabeth Warren that question. The more uh, damaging, probably, or nefarious, interpretation is what you suggest, which is that I mean, it's, even after she said, she said, so to clarify, uh, Senator Sanders, you did not tell Elizabeth Warren that a woman could win, that that's correct. And then she turned and said, so what did you think when he told you that? I mean, it was, it was just, uh, again, it was either rank incompetence or it was uh, a really just a, a, a sort of uh, vicious way of, of perpetuating this idea that it's so simple. I mean, you just turn to Elizabeth Warren and you ask her the question. He says you didn't say it. Did you say it or not? Are, is, he a li- is he lying or exactly. not? It's so simple. That the fact that she didn't do it raises all sorts of questions. And look, when you're a moderator at a debate, you never want to be the story. I mean, this harkens back. You remember Candy Crowley, another oh, case of oh, CNN yes. moderation, right? When CNN. She steps in to fact check, it, falsely, by the way, uh, you know, Mitt Romney with Barack Obama in the middle of that debate. So this is just, it's, it's just a bad look for CNN, it's a bad look for the moderators, and it does. Look, it's, it's going to refuel uh, all of the complaints of the Bernie supporters that, like, everybody has it in for him, all the establishment folks, all the media folks. And, and beyond that one question, they did a number of times they actually did sort of set up Bernie's opponents to, to, to take shots at him, uh, you know, in the way that they frame these questions. And they did it with other people, too, but it seemed to sort of 
said, Bernie was always seemed to be at the center of it. So um, I'm sure that's going to be one of the things that that continues out of this debate is some hard feelings. There, there certainly was a social media backlash. Um, if you'd go through, I mean, you can just, the, the Bernie supporters are already fired up, and man, they just unleashed on Elizabeth Warren um, on some of the social media sites. But I want, I want to get you on two things. One, just back to the, to the questions, and I, I don't want to belabor the point, but some of these questions from the moderators were just so hypothetical and silly and, I can't, and lazy. Um, asking, you know, will it, what, this was a serious question. Will you allow Iran to become a nuclear power? Who's going who's gonna to say yes to that? I mean, just really, really ridiculous questions. I, I wanted to get your thoughts on that since, since you are a journalist and you were there. And then I want to know if you think any of the candidates moved the needle last night for themselves. I'll take the last part first, and I think the answer is no. I mean, I thought this debate was incredibly, as John said, boring. Um, it was probably the worst debate of the bunch, and that's really saying a lot. I was in the spin room after, and, and you guys have been in these spin rooms, and there's a certain energy, a certain buzz that that is in these spin rooms as people are milling about. There was nothing last night, and it was dead silent. It was it was weird. I mean, I just don't – I've never seen anything like it. There was just a total lack of enthusiasm seemingly by the candidates themselves and, and even by the press corps. Um, so I thought that was weird. I, I did think, look, the questions, I get it. Uh, you know, th- there is a tendency of, for, for journalists to sit there and, and Monday morning quarterback and be like, well, I would have asked this question. I would have asked this question. So even taking that into account, though, I mean, I do think it is incumbent upon the moderators to come up with questions that that really try and elicit some information from folks, not just allow them to, to repeat talking points, which is a lot of what we've got. And I, I get it. We've had seven debates, and a lot of this ground has been covered. Um, so it, it makes it even more incumbent upon the moderators to try and come up with new, interesting, different questions, uh, even if it's on the same subject, to try and elicit new information. To your point, the question on Iran was silly. A better question would have been, uh, you know, to have each one of these folks talk about whether they agreed or not with the killing of Soleimani. I mean, this was a, this was a major event that just took place. A lot of these Democrats have been silent about the protests that have been going on inside Iran over the over uh, the downing of this flight by the Iranian regime. That would have been an interesting question to get their response to that, because seemingly no one has said anything about that yet, um, or only referenced it in the passing. So there were a lot of. Uh, I, I I agree with you. I thought um, it's a tough job, but but look, that's part of what when you take this on and you're going to be sitting up there on stage, it is incumbent upon you. And I think the moderators really failed on multiple levels last night. We're talking with Tom Bevin, co-founder, president of Real Clear Politics, a, a Princeton football player in his prime, and a former uh, and, a, and a friend of mine. And, wow, I learned something new and, about you, and Tom. And we will we will be talking to Tom just right. At, we're going to take. John's a short, using that term loosely. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. This is the Dan Proft Show. John Cass and Kristen McQuarrie are filling in for him. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. So, Mr. Bevin, now that we've uh, dealt with the uh, subpar performance of the Democrats and the whining of the pundits on, on TV complaining that their guy didn't do so well... I, I do have to say, though, um, Joe Biden looked like a ter- I mean, he looked terrible to me. 
He looked old. <laughs> he looked. He stuttered. He looked. He just didn't look like the guy up. But to did the he job. look any different than he's looked in any of these other debates, John? I mean, I think this is the thing about Biden. He looked that way from the beginning, and it hasn't hurt him. In fact, the latest polls and I would have him moving up. So I, I, I don't know that anything that happened on the debate stage uh, is going to change anything. Even though Joe Biden a couple times was just serving these heaping helpings of word salad, <laughs> just. Going around in circles makes no sense whatsoever. But he was always um, tasked. He was tasked with, I, they asked me to ch- end the war. They asked me to take the troops home. Obama asked me. It was like he was like this the Captain America waiting for the well, jello at 4 o'clock for the early dinner at the diner. Oh, man. <laughs> Sorry. I just want, he, 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 he is still leading in the polls. And I just, I, I can't. I can't step away from the fact that you had such a diverse field of Democratic presidential candidates in a party that emphasizes that endlessly every second of every day. And Joe Biden is still the leading contender. Can you please explain this to me, Tom? Well, I mean, it's a couple of things. The Democrats, they have an interesting dilemma dynamic within their caucus, which is the party still is, I think, a little more moderate. But the progressives have the energy and the enthusiasm, clearly. So. Um, you've got Bernie, who excites young people. All these, all these top four candidates have their sort of core constituencies. They've all raised a lot of money, so they're on, you know, they're they're running ads in these early states and building up their operations. And Joe Biden, his core constituency are older voters, and in particular, older African Americans who, you know, are are loyal to him. They're nostalgic for for his uh, vice presidency and and whatnot, and they don't necessarily look over and see. At least right now, I mean, it looks like if you look at the polls, if some of them took a look at Pete Buttigieg and moved in his direction as he was on a climb. Uh, it looks like some of them may have looked at, uh, you know, Kamala Harris back in the day. Um, but they keep going back to Joe Biden because I think the alternatives are not inspiring them. And so, so Biden remains uh, in this pre-vote period very high in the polls in in uh, obviously nationally and in his firewall in south carolina but surprisingly a bit in iowa new hampshire if that holds he'll be in good shape to win the nomination but you know there is a scenario where these folks at the final minute you know in the last couple of weeks here in iowa if joe biden doesn't meet expectations if he doesn't finish now and remember he wasn't even going to participate in iowa so expectations now suddenly as he's he's at the top of the polls have risen dramatically so if he finishes third and and performs 10 points under what the polls say he should get. That's the narrative that he's going to carry out of here, which is not, which might be problematic for his campaign. It could really shift the dynamic of this race. So we'll have to wait and see what the voters actually decide. But but right now, um, he's he's relying on a bunch of goodwill from from mostly older, more moderate voters um, that still represent a good chunk of the Democratic Party and and. He's got the majority of them right now. Yes, but he's also an old man, and he looks old. He's out there, and he just—I know that Trump is old, but Bernie Sanders standing right next to him. Bernie had a heart attack three weeks ago, and he looks tougher and better than <laughs> Joe know. Biden, for God's sake. You, you know, know? It's funny is like when Joe Biden opens his mouth, I mean, you can literally feel the tension in the room, especially among his supporters. When he has to answer the bait question, I mean, there's just like there's there's pure terror that he's going to say something that is, you know, incomprehensible or offensive. I mean, and also Trump, they're worried Trump about actually, whether Trump his teeth will fall out. Right. Can you imagine the two Trump of them debating? 
oh my God, it would be outrageous. And it could very well happen. Yeah. Uh, you know, Trump does the same thing, but I think his voters almost expected of him and, and don't mind it. Joe Biden folks are terrified. I remember when Reagan would speak and I was scared. You know, don't screw up, don't screw up. But with, with, uh, with Trump, it's like, well, he's going to throw a left hook. So we have to ask you about impeachment. A um, lot of activity happened today. Can you throw it forward for us? Where do you see this heading in the next, uh, next couple of weeks, and how do you think it will impact the polling that you do so regularly? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't. We still don't know the outlines of, of the trial in the Senate and how long it'll last. It could be short. And by short, we mean, you know, a couple of weeks or it could go long, which in from what I'm seeing and reading and hearing could be, you know, I think at the, at the very far end, two months. Tom Bevan of Real Clear Politics, co-founder, publisher, boss of Real Clear. Princeton football player. Princeton football, my friend. I still own Chicago English. resident, right? Steak dinner. And a Chicago area resident. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Tom. You got it, guys. Thank you. Thanks, buddy. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof. And this is the Dan Prof Show. Listening to the Dan Proft Show. Filling in for Dan Proft tonight is John Cass, syndicated columnist for the Chicago Tribune, and myself, Krista McQuarrie, write a column for the Chicago Tribune, and I'm also on the editorial board. And I sat up and watched the debate, interrupted by children many times. Um, but I, but the impression that it the left children in your living room, the children the in my ones, living room, not the correct. ones on TV. Okay, not the one, not the ones on the stage. Ba boom boom, nice one, right. John. Uh, we just talked to Tom Bevan, who was there, and talked about just sort of the that there wasn't the usual sort of electricity in the press room um, as this was going on. And really, this is this is a field that's they're, they're all being so careful. They don't want to say they don't want to be the person who made the gaffe at the debate. But the result is that you just got all this sort of vanilla. We need to invest. I mean, I think Elizabeth Warren promised my mortgage. Uh, my kids' mortgages, uh, their bank accounts to pay for free childcare, free college, free healthcare, everything. Um, but I wondered if you thought, John, if you were a Democratic voter and your number one priority was to get rid of Donald Trump and you're watching that stage and that's going to guide your vote, who do you think is the biggest threat to Donald Trump? If you are a Democratic voter, who are you going to vote for? If I was a Democratic voter... And again, I, as a Republican voter, I've chosen principle over party, and I voted for. I wanted Rand Paul. I, I'm a libertarian conservative, although Greek Orthodox and being raised, so that's kind of uh, difficult. But yes, uh, okay. If I were a Democrat, who's the authentic Democrat? There's only one: Bernie Sanders. Now. I might disagree with him, and I do, on policy. But he speaks to the heart of his party the way it is now. Um, Elizabeth Warren, what is she? She's a scold and a phony who made up uh, 
the Cherokee thing and the cold crab omelets with omelets with crab meat and all that that we talked to Howie Carr about. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, how, how what a phony. How does she even progress? Um, Buttigieg, you know, smooth vanilla, like a Hallmark card. He's kind of like a Hallmark card with like a little edge to him, but smarmy. And if he weren't, if he hadn't been gay, I don't think he would have gotten the boost early on from the media that he did because these all, and that's not to condemn him for it. It's just speaking to the intersectionality, that highway of intersectionality Mm -hmm. that is the Democratic Party. And now they're complaining, oh, there's no Spartacus, so they're all racist, so now they're devouring themselves that way. Bernie's the only one who's not speaking about race, or he's just total stone-cold commie. (laughs) You know, stone, I mean socialist, whatever you want to call it. And uh, But he speaks to the heart of their party with an authenticity that scold like um, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Amy Klobuchar, the yeah, I, what is she the 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 lady at the store who's going to come back and tell you that you didn't bag the groceries right? I don't know who is she. She's trying to be the centrist Democrat without saying those words right. because she still has to attract the progressives. Right. But she says things, and again, you just feel like these, these have been poll tested and so messaged that she can't. She just comes off so robotic That's and so unfortunate because she's much smarter. She's than smart, that. but she really has no spark. But she is the person who is saying. You know, these are pipe dreams in terms of Medicare for all and free college for all. So if if you are policy driven, she's probably more attractive to you as a candidate. But I mean, Trump isn't even talking about her because she's just been a non-entity. And I don't I, I think she needed to show a lot more pizzazz at this um, at this debate to sort of stir that centrist Democrat who's looking for someone to vote for. And I just I don't think she did it. And I, now she's going to be in Washington f- for the length of this trial as a yeah. senator and off the campaign trail. That's and to I'd... protect uh, Biden. Biden's out there in Iowa, and the Bernie Sanders can't go, and neither can Warren. They're stuck in Washington for the impeachment trial. And that's trying I, I see, whenever I read a story or see a story or see one developing, I'm always thinking, who benefits? Mm-hmm. Who benefits from this? Well, by delaying the impeachment for three weeks, of course, Joe Biden benefits because he can try to work his ground while Bernie Sanders is not there with his ground game in Iowa. But I think uh, generally, uh, Kristen McQuarrie, that a campaign between Donald Trump, a populist, and Bernie Sanders, a populist, would be valuable. And I really can't tell you who. I know that the Democrats are saying, oh, uh, Trump would win. But they, the Democrats saying that? The ones that rip on Bernie Sanders, they sound exactly like the pro-Bush establishment Republicans sounded when they were trying to keep Jeb alive. Remember mm-hmm. when he yeah. was saying, mm-hmm. please clap for me? Right. right. And, yeah. and I, I, I agree with you completely. I think a, a matchup between Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump would be fascinating. Epic. But, <laughs> but Joe Biden, we are paying attention to the turn of the screw of all of this stuff. Most Americans are not tuned in. They can't. They didn't watch last night. They were busy watching other television that was much Jeopardy. more entertaining. Jeopardy to start. Um, they can't even name the people who are on the stage. And so Joe Biden, because he was Barack Obama's vice president, he still has 
a lot. You cannot win the Democratic nomination unless you get that African-American base out to vote. And I'm just waiting for the moment when Barack Obama decides it's time to swoop in and help his friend and cuts a couple ads to really help coast him over the top in terms of that population. And then us sitting here and Will talking about Medicare. get Oprah, too? Perhaps. sit with Joe and have a piece of pie. Sure. Oh, she'll have pie, cream pie. He'll have Jello. Four o'clock in the afternoon at the early special. <laughs> He'll have that. He his his bedtime is like eight thirty. So I, I yeah, he has to have that early senior citizen. Do meal. something with the tongue and the teeth and the grit in there. This is John <laughs> Cass, Kristen McQuarrie. We're filling in for Dan Prof on the Dan Prof Show, and we'll see you in a bit. Being a print conservative in Chicago is like being Winston Smith with Richard Burton pulling that tooth out of my head as I'm on the ground crying and saying, what have you done to me? What have you done to me? It's not really that bad, okay? We're not snowflakes here. We're conservatives. But Kristen McQuarrie, we've had a great show. I've enjoyed it. I hope the reader, listeners have and readers. I want to know, where can people, what are you going to be doing, thinking about in the next several days ahead. I am going to be watching, um, obviously, the Senate trial, Chief Justice Roberts, and how he how he can navigate this. He's sort of the only supposedly nonpartisan person who's going to be controlling a lot of the um, a lot of the the, te- the tempo of the Senate trial. So I'm going to be watching that. I cover a lot of um, tax issues across the country tax issues in Illinois and how it's driving population, how that will affect census and the makeup of congressional districts. So you can find me at chicagotribune.com in the opinion section under Tribune Voices. Uh, John Cass, you are syndicated, and they can also find you at chicagotribune.com. You have a podcast. Yeah, we have a podcast. Kristen's on it. Sometimes Danny's on it. We had we talked to Dan once, Kristen and I, about Dan's private personal life. That Which means really, it lasted about this long. That One, was painful. He two, really didn't three. want to talk it. about it. Um, you know what I'm I'm going to be focused on the the nature of the deep, not the deep state, the way Sean Hannity talks about it. I mean the nature of the administrative state, which is fighting. It's in a death battle with Donald Trump, a death battle. I'm not talking about Brennan and Clapper and all these spy masters. I'm talking about the entire administrative state. Brett Kavanaugh, Neil Gorsuch, U.S. Supreme Court justices, others are trying to dismantle it. It is really the most impressive and important 
battle of our time as Americans when, when you know, there's a, not a war. And uh, because it speaks to the future of what kind of an America we're going to be. And that's what I'm interested in. What kind of an America? Take the slogans and your Twitter feeds and your social justice warrior stuff. Take that away. Put it with Je- Jesse Smollett, you know, on his tuna sandwich. And just think about the future of the republic. For Kristen McQuarrie of the Chicago Tribune, you can find her at McQuarrie Kristen on Twitter and on her Facebook page and at the Chicago Tribune website. And for me, John Cass, husband, father, columnist for the Chicago Tribune, thanks for letting us sit in for Dan Proft on the Dan Proft Show. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.